Money FM 89.3, the best of your money. Market View on Money FM 89.3. Joining me now as we break down all the market action fresh from his weekend break, Ryan Huang. Good morning. Good morning, Michelle. How was your oh, weekend? Oh my gosh, it was power packed. Thank you to everybody who came out to say hi to Tan Tuan Eng. It was a magnificent crowd and he was in top form. Nice, nice. So that book launch event went well, I, I imagine. All your fans yes. turned up? Yes, yes. <laughs> it was great fun to, you know, meet people who packed. say. I've only known you as a voice, Michelle. Yeah, it was, it was absolutely wonderful to see the number of readers still in Singapore excited. And by the way, if you haven't yet picked up his book, please do. It's about lives lived under the shadow of empire in colonial Malaya. House of Doors. But that's not always starting this week with. By the way, did you catch Barbie? Aha, uh-huh. interesting question because I'm watching Oppenheimer later today after work. Hey, hey. So Oppenheimer first and maybe Barbie later. We'll see. Have you got the gold class things going? Yeah, it has a long movie, so I splurge on a nice seat. Oh, nice. Good to know. But I already know how it goes. Tomorrow we'll get your review. Let's start this week with a clearer picture of the financial health of several major list companies in Singapore, including those that make up the Jardine Matheson Group. Overall, it appears to be doing quite well. DFI Retail, back in the black. And Jardine Cycle and Carriage reporting a 33% jump in first half profits. But losses at the Hong Hotel business, Mandarin Oriental, are widening. Okay, let's start with that point there. Most tourism companies are reporting a resurgence of earnings, Ryan. Why is Mandarin Oriental still struggling? Yeah, so let's talk about the numbers here. And this is with Mandarin Oriental recording uh, what is pretty much a wider loss. So we've got a $69.2 million first half loss. And this is pretty much widening from um, the year before. And you've got right now in focus um, that $18.3 million loss um, widening to 69.2 because of fair value losses. One is because of investment assets, uh, a commercial property under development and a completed residential project. So that's been down in terms of valuations. So that is a bit of a weight on Mandarin Oriental. The other part is a couple of things that have been playing out. One is the Hong Kong economy uh, in terms of at least the hospitality side of things for Mandarin Oriental. That is more gradual in terms of recovery than expected. So it's not picking up as fast. And the other one is back home in Singapore. One of my favorite hotels, Mandarin Oriental Singapore, has been going through refurbishment. And this is, of course, putting it out of action and does not contribute to the bottom line here. So a couple of factors weighing on Mandarin Oriental. Why is it one of your favorite hotels? Uh, it's got a very nice old school charm, especially when you look up into the ceiling. There's so much headroom and space. You're almost teleported to a different world. Do you get a feeling when you look up and this architecture, is you don't see it around anymore? There is something about the nostalgia and there mm. used to be like birds or bird cages, you know, inside that uh, hotel lobby soaring vaunted ceiling Mm. which was quite beautiful Uh, putting Mandarin Oriental aside though what is your take on the overall health of Jardine Matheson's diverse holdings yeah like you point out Michelle it's been a pretty decent quarter and pretty pretty good start of the year so far and what's great about Jardine 
Matheson Holdings mm. is that it's so diverse and it's got a lot of growth engines, uh, not just Mandarin Oriental, which taps on hospitality. You've also got the likes of the automobile business from the likes of Astra, which is part under Jardian Second Carriage. So that part of business is also doing quite well. Uh, of course, being helped by a recovery in those markets is operating in. Also, dairy farm uh, retail group, that is another part of the pie that is also growing and it's a bit of a nice diversification because it goes into supermarkets and also more of the value stuff that people go to when times are harder. So it's hatched on that side of the fence as well. And of course, it's got Guardian under DFI, 7-Eleven. So it's a widespread of businesses uh, which have been growing, by and large, pretty okay in the past few years. Jardine Matheson will pay an interim dividend of 60 US cents per share. Its shares are also up, by the way, 3% over the past three months. Let's turn to tech stocks now. Market analysts and traders have been watching closely to see how companies are using AI and how much they're investing in it. CNBC is running a pretty interesting piece about this that caught my eye this morning. It contrasts Apple's approach to AI with that of its competitors. While Google, Microsoft and Meta can't stop talking about AI, Apple rarely mentions it. Why is that? Yeah, this is a very interesting observation and it really comes down to the core of Apple, what Apple is and how they sell themselves. So like you pointed out, everyone's been on the AI bandwagon talking about AI and really just mentioning, name dropping it everywhere they go, especially on the earnings call. But if you look at the latest um, session, the latest uh, earnings call that Tim Cook had back in a uh, back in May he only said AI twice and this was in response to a question so they don't really at least for now go big on upselling the word AI um, they seem to favor the phrase machine learning and let's go back to the DNA of Apple so if you've been watching their advertisements or the way they market themselves it's always around how the technology works for you. Like if you look at the ads, there is, for example, when they're selling um, FaceTime, mm -hmm. they will talk about how you can connect with a grandma from overseas and then it gives you that fuzzy feeling. They don't talk about the, the, the technology or the specs behind the video cameras or the phones. It's always about what the technology can do for you and... I think this is what they are focusing on, what AI can do for you, what the software can do for you, rather than talk about the specs and how it's so smart, they want to sell you that fuzzy feeling. Because I think buying and selling is an emotions-driven game. If you've got you know, your emotions peaked, then you are more likely to buy. Yeah, works in the background. They don't need to yell about it, but it's certainly part of the whole uh, approach to facilitating what they do for you in your life, Apple, right? During last week's earnings calls, Alphabet, Microsoft, Meta all used the phrase, phrase AI more than 150 times. Contrast that with Apple. They use the expression only twice during their May earnings call. And in both cases, that was in response to a reporter's questions. Very telling, those numbers. Apple share price is up more than 50% since the beginning of the year. Amazon's is as well. Both companies will report their earnings this week. Many analysts say they're going to need to report strong earnings in order to justify these valuations. What's your take on that? I mean, our tech shares fraud or is the run-up justified? Yeah, there is some, I guess, slack for them because heading into the earnings season, we were looking a 
bit gloomy, so the bar was set lower than previously. So that's one. The bar is going to be easier to pass. And then the other thing to watch out for will be what's going to play out in China. Everyone's been talking about how China is going to be a bit of a dampener when it comes to the equation. So we'll be seeing how much of a dampener it is in the at least, at least iPhone part of the business. And that seems to be, by and large, communicated that iPhone sales are going to be a bit snuggish. But I guess the good news here for Apple, at least, is that the services side of things, where we get better margins, that has been picking up in the past few quarters and likely to do so in the next one. So that could help offset things and all in, make it at least a flat quarter for Apple. The other part is the ads business. We've heard from Meta as well as Alphabet. And surprisingly, things seem to be coming back, at least for the big boys. So people are coming back to digital advertising, flocking perhaps to the more bigger quality names. So they are perhaps going to be moving as well to the likes of Apple, which is... Also an advertising business, if you look at um, what they have. So that is a growing part of Apple's business as well. Amazon also has been seeing its ad business grow. In fact, the growth rate for Amazon's ad business has been faster than its cloud business. Mm. So you've got some interesting dynamics here, which will, I think, uh, paint a very interesting picture for digital advertising, which itself would be a bellwether for wider economic sentiment. Wall Street is nearly at that halfway mark for the second quarter earnings season. So far, some 250 listed U.S. companies have reported earnings. And of these, more than 80% have surpassed expectations. This according to FactSet and CNBC. So we'll find out on Friday whether Amazon and Apple join this list of overachieving companies. Let's zoom out. You're listening to Market View. He's Ryan Huang. I'm Michelle Martin. And we're looking at broader markets right now. Wall Street chalked up its third straight week of gains last quarter. The Nasdaq rose nearly 2%. The S&P 500 gained 1%. And the Dow Jones Industrial Average finished in the green as well. So aside from tech earnings and Oppenheimer, what else is on your radar this week? <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about what's to come. And it's going to be a busy week. We had the Federal Reserve, the ECB, the BOJ, mm. and all stirring things up. Of course, um, still watching for the ripples from the BOJ's move to offer more flexibility around its UK control. Uh, so that could still keep markets on their toes. So central banks again in action. Tomorrow, we will get the Reserve Bank of Australia. Expectations are for them to keep pace and hike rates by 25 basis points. And then later on in the week, the big data point from the US will be the July jobs report. And that is expected to show an increase of 200,000 jobs, which will be a slight moderation from the June reading. By and large, even though it's moderating, it is still quite resilient when you look at how the jobs market is in the US. And one final thing I will be watching out for will be today. Besides the PMI numbers out from China, there's going to be a press conference at 3pm where policymakers are expected to roll out some measures Going by what we are hearing, it will be targeted at boosting consumer spending. So that's going to 
mean some uh, possible catalysts for markets later today? As we watch the global markets, a couple more things to keep in mind. I want to flag for you. The latest economic figures indicate that inflation is moderating while U.S. growth is relatively strong. So there may be a tussle this week between the bulls who believe that a soft economic landing in the U.S. is now assured and the bears who argue that the share prices have run up too far too fast. Time for corporate news. We do it up or down style. Let's open our books, Ryan, and take a look at the luxury goods maker. Hermes is up first. All right. Hermes is an up for me. And it seems like people love the Birkin bag. I don't get it. Have uh, you got a Birkin? Uh, that shall for forever remain <laughs> quiet. All right. uh, I have to say, I think they're ugly. <laughs> okay. So I think it's one of those things you either hate it or love it. So more people seem to be loving it these days because Hermes' sales and profits are jumping, especially from the US and China. People are snapping it up and you've got revenue in, for example, the Americas side of the business for Hermes up 21%. So it's beating its rivals LVMH and Richmond. Mm, luxury goods continue to be in demand. Those Birkin bags, they start at 10,000 US dollars. By the way, they can rise to more than a quarter million. And sales are strong for those Birkins. That's good news for Hermes, which is outperforming its rivals like LVMH and Richemont. Hermes earned nearly 3 billion euros during the first half of the year. Its share price, in case you're wondering, is up 50% over the past 12 months. We've been talking about cruises quite a bit. How are Royal Caribbean cruises doing? Yeah, I love cruises and because everything's on board. <laughs> I think that is attraction here. And I suppose it's going to be depending on how you look at it. So they've got some bad news for people who want to go on cruises because ticket prices are going up, apparently. Mm. And I suppose that's a reflection of how hot demand is for cruises. All right, the, I guess, good news here for people going on cruises is the value there, if you compare it to what else is on the table, your trip to Disneyland, your theme parks, those theme parks are costing more. So you put it side by side, you would theoretically get more value going to a cruise. So in that sense, hey, maybe it is a better time to go on a cruise and that's, I guess, the brighter side of things to look at how you want to um, see this. Roy Krubin, and up for me. Yeah, up for me as well. Another sign that travel and tourism is in demand. Royal Caribbean's cruises second quarter bookings have topped market expectations. So its share price has more than doubled since the beginning of the year. Now, keep in mind that the cruise line nearly went bankrupt during the pandemic, but we were talking about it quite yeah. a bit on this I've show. I've drop this number. So oh, right yeah, now, yeah, yeah. Um, the gap between a land-based mm. ticket or experience versus a cruise is 45%, up to 45% between these price difference. price differences. Back then or not too long ago, it was 15 to 20%. So that's how much that gap is right now, the value gap. Interesting. Next up, let's look at the fast-moving consumer goods company, P&G, Procter & Gamble. Okay, P&G is going to be an up for me. And it seems like they have been able to hike prices and pass it on. So that's something that's going to do well for their earnings. The small caveat here is it is flagging weak demand in China. 
That's it. P&G makes products that make passing on those costs pretty easy, right? They sell Crest toothpaste, Tide laundry detergent, Pampers diapers. Its profits have been coming in above expectations, but overall sales, yes, hurt by weak Chinese consumer demand. And the company's outlook for the rest of the year is weak. So I'll give P&G a down. Sabana Reed. All right, this is... uh one of those stories that gives me a hangover because it goes back and forth. Right now, I am going with down for Sabana because ESR, or rather Quartz, has come back with a bit of a rebuttal. So we had a bit of an open letter from ESR Group and this is the manager of Sabana and Reed. So there was a figure here, which is the profits that Sabana Reed makes, the manager makes from Sabana Reed. So Quartz has come out to say, hey, that figure is wrong. That $1.26 million profit figure is understated. In fact, it should be $2 million. So it's all part of a back and forth tit for tat or you know, back and forth um, saga between Quartz, the activist investor, and the manager of Sabana Reed. Quartz has been trying to make the Reed manager internalized versus being managed from an external manager. Mm. So they have been trying to prove that it's not value or it's not worth it to have the current state of play as it is because of how much it costs. So it's going to be more efficient, more cost effective. So that's where they're coming from, trying to play up this number here. Saga is a good word, Ryan, to use. Uh, the saga of Sabana Reed continues to thicken in its latest bid against the management team there. Basically, Activist investor Quartz Capital says Sabana Reed has underreported its income. We have to keep an eye on this one to see how this latest uh, twist turns out, so to speak. But it's not a good fit for Sabana Reed, not a good look. So I'll give it a down. Okay, so is it going up or going down, the cost of writing a check? It is going up. Uh. Well, not great news if you're used to it. So I suppose the writing was on the wall <laughs> at some point. <laughs> This had to come, right? Everyone's going digital. And I think in order for everyone to embrace going digital, this has to go. And it's actually one of my pet peeves. Why do we still need to write on a piece of paper and then pass it on to someone when everything's so digital? Because someone else requires it. I had to get a renovation permit. Yes. I needed to give a check. That really stood out for me yeah. during the pandemic when I was in the midst of buying a house. And I still had to physically go down, write a check, pass it on to someone. Like, why couldn't I just transfer the entire monies instead of having That's to it. see you at office? Well, I'm glad this at least is one step towards that direction uh, that perhaps property sales, you know, visiting a lawyer, that sense that you get more comfort writing something and passing it on. I think, I hope um, people can move on from that. Yeah. I share your sentiment. Stop requiring checks, people. Starting in November, most banks are going to start charging us consumers for every Singapore dollar denominated check that we use. And this change applies both to companies and individuals. I'm not a fan of higher fees ever. So I'll give this a down. And by the way, if your company is still using checks, please, please shift to digital banking. Because in another 18 months or so, the banks are going to stop issuing corporate checkbooks altogether. For our last word today, we're going to travel to Switzerland and I am going to get cheesy. Yes, Switzerland may be famous for chocolates and cheeses. But today we're going to talk about cheese. Are you a fan? I'm a big fan <laughs> of cheese. I could eat it all day. <laughs> Favorite type? 
Favorite type? Well, I'll go with the usual mozzarella. Oh, I can yum. put it on everything. <laughs> now, the average, you, you might be part Swiss, Ryan. We've got to get you genetically tested. The average Swiss person apparently eats more than 23 kilos of cheese a year. It's nearly half a kilo of cheese a week. Wow. Uh, and so for the first time, Switzerland apparently is on track to import more cheese than it sells abroad. What do you think? 23 kilos. That's like the weight of a small <laughs> child. Gosh, um, yeah. So it does look quite interesting that Swiss cheese, you know, it really goes together, that phrase. They eat so much that they now have to import it. Wow. Yeah, amazing. Inflation and exchange rates uh, are at play here, listeners. The Swiss franc is strong and that's making Swiss cheese more expensive and imported cheese cheaper. Also, milk prices in Switzerland are rising and so that's adding on to the higher cheese costs. And by the way, chocolate prices are also apparently set to rise because of bad weather in West Africa. Uh. That is pushing up cocoa prices. Yeah, it looks like they are you know, forming a taste for foreign cheese as well. So that part of the import is also coming um, stronger. Also, you want to stock up on your chocolate and cheese, okay? That's the bottom line for today. Thanks very much, Ryan Huang there. I'm Michelle Martin. Stay with us. Before acting on the information on Money FM, please consider if it's suitable for your own investment objectives, financial situation, and risk tolerance. To listen to more great interviews, download our podcasts at audio.sg or download the audio app. That's A-W-E-D-I-O, audio at the App Store and Google Play.